started. So uh, let's pray, see what the Lord has. Father, thank you so much for your goodness and your love. Father, thank you so much for this beautiful day that you set before us. Lord, I just pray that you would come now, Father, and that you would just meet us here. Father, touch our hearts and continue to teach us and grow us. Father, help us to know the weapons that you've given us, Father, the weapons of warfare, Lord, so that we can get through each day, each moment, Father. Uh, the battle rages, Father, and we just thank you that you are uh, our God who fights for us. So, Lord, we ask that you would just come now, you would meet us here, and that you would just speak to us, Lord, speak to our hearts. In Jesus' name, we pray. So as Donna said, um, we're at the end now of chapter, we're chapter 6, Ephesians. We're now wrapping up our our second uh, book. So we're halfway through our four books already. So like she said, you know, I'm going to wrap it up. So I guess I'll do a little wrap for you. So in verses 1 to 3 says, Paul begins with the joyful truth. But I'm not going to do my whole study like that because it would be enough to, I'd get Stopped in the first paragraph. I'm just kidding. But anyway, so we are. We're uh, cleaning up. We're finishing up uh, Ephesians chapter 6 now. So I'm going to do just a really quick little brief uh, for some of you maybe who weren't here for the first five books. In verses 1 through 3, Paul begins, um, Paul begins with the, tr- the joyful truth that every believer has been chosen by God before the foundation of the world. Paul teaches us about the unity of believers, the truth, and the blessings that all believers have in common. Uh, He wrote that all Christians are adopted as sons through Christ Jesus. All believers are redeemed through his blood. They're sealed with the Holy Spirit. Paul continues on and clears up one of the most misconceived and often ignored subjects, even of today, salvation by grace. He wrote that salvation is is by the grace of God, and it is through faith, and that no one can contribute to salvation in any way, even with the best of deeds. For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of, that not of yourself, it's a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. In chapters 4 and 5, Paul encourages the believer to walk in a manner of, of worthy of their calling. Every believer is responsible to live as a servant of Jesus. And in these chapters, Paul taught us that it's hard work to be in unity with others. It's not easy. We have a lot of opposition, but that we must be imitators of God. He gives imperative truths and advice for well-functioning families, including husbands and wives. And then once again, upon marriage, they become one flesh. Paul explained the concept of having a biblical marriage. If you weren't here, get the CD. Noreen did a really good study on that. Uh, He told He um, reminds us that the marriage is is a picture of Christ and the church, the body of believers. And the way that Jesus loved the church is the way that our husbands ought to live, ought to love his treasured wives. And for those of you who are married, yes, you are a treasure. So we should act like that too. Noreen did, uh, like I said, that wonderful study. She talked about walking in love, walking in light, walking in the wisdom. And at the very end, as we end chapter 5, it says, let the wife see that she respects her husband. So that's what we were left with when we went home. So I don't know how your week was and how things went, but, you know, it's in there to see that we actually practice it. So here we are in chapter 6. Paul instructs believers on how to prepare for the spiritual battle by dressing in the full armor of God. We'll go through some of them. We'll go through all those pieces. But prayer is key is a key weapon of the Christian soldier. He emphasizes this principle uh, with the repeated statement of stand firm. 
Paul's instruction to the church is that Christianity is for all men, Jews, Gentile, men, male, female, bond, free, all are united in Christ. All men can enter, but only by grace through faith in Christ. And this is a free gift of God. The Christian can never go back to the law of Moses. And to overcome the powers of darkness, believers must unite in Christ. Ephesians, deals, Ephesians has dealt with topics at the very core of what it means to be a Christian, both in faith and in practice, regardless of what's happening in the world around us. And we live in a crazy world. This is a, ra- a raging war, but we can wage war. So in verses 1 through 3, it says, uh, Ephesians chapter 6, it says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it might be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. He's saying, children, listen, hearken, do what your parents say. Proverbs 1, 8, Solomon says, My son, hear the instructions of your father and do not forsake the law of your mother. As parents, we have wisdom, we have life experience, we have failures, we have victories, and we also have discernment. And I'll share real quickly, I, I know I've kind of mentioned before, but when my daughter was in eighth grade, she was going, going to the mall with a group of friends, and um, right before she left that morning, you know, no, no coincidence, you know, her dad was home, and before she left, he just, you know, he walked, she walked out the door, and he said, don't do anything stupid. And so, because he knew she was going, you know, and just, you know, girls can be silly. And so off they went to the mall with a parent, and, um, you know, all day long, they kind of, the girls were talking, and one of them was talking about shoplifting and how she had done it. She was scared, but it was good. And so they go to the mall, and all of a sudden, the girls, you know, go off. Three of them go off on their own, and three of them stayed with the mom. And so then all of a sudden, you know, a little later on, my phone rings, and I just, when I knew the phone ring, I'm like, something's not right. The Lord, you know, the Lord just showed me. Pick up the phone, and Jill says, Mom, can you come and get me? I'm like, where from? She said, you know, I'm over at so-and-so's mom at house. And I said, okay. So when I got there, um, I needed to pick her up. But she stayed with the mom. And the three girls that went off on their own had got picked up by the cops for shoplifting. So, and so, I, of course, I asked her, I'm like, you know, what happened? Were you tempted? You know, what happened? And she said, you know, they talked about it. And she said, I said, well, why didn't you do it? She said, because when dad this morning, he said, don't do anything stupid. He said, so I stayed with, with, with the mom. We have wisdom. So make sure that we're giving our kids that wisdom. Uh, there's, a ble- there's a blessing in obeying the parents. It's a higher law. It's the highest law. The highest law is to obey Jesus. We, we do not do anything against the will of God. We need to be filled with the spirit. The spirit will not violate the law of God. Children are to obey their parents, of course, unless it's immoral or against the word of God. Uh, Noreen reminded us in, uh, last week in a principle, but once again, in Acts 5.29, Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. We are talking about Christians here, Christian parents and Christian children. Obedience is for your youth, but honor is for life. We need to honor our parents in the way we speak about them, the way we speak to them, how we treat them. There's a direct blessing from the Lord. Even if you didn't have the best appearance, you can still honor them. Some may believe that we're not accountable to God to do the right thing in every single situation in life. But we are. Sometimes it's hard. You know what? Especially when you're trying to please God. 
and then you're met with criticisms or you're met with opposition. You're standing on the, your, your desire alone to serve God, to please him. God doesn't promise physical victory in every confrontation, but what he does expect is faithfulness and commitment to him. If you're being opposed in your desire to please God, close yourself with the armor and stand firm. And in verse 4, it says, And you, fathers, don't provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Spirit-filled parenting doesn't frustrate. It's not arbitrary. It doesn't discourage. It doesn't pick fights. It doesn't have a lot of rules and regulations. Spirit-filled parenting rewards because God is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him, Hebrews 11:6 says. Do you motivate your children? Do they want to know the word? Do they want to come to church? Do you praise them when they memorize scripture? Are you, are you joyful when they sing praise songs? I mean, but we have to be careful, right? Because then we can also get into what is called, what? Idol worship, right? Then we put them on these pedestals. They're so great. Our kids are so awesome. You know what? We put them up so high they need sunglasses because, you know, they're so close to the sun. It's a crazy. Need to be careful at that, though. There's that fine line. We need to be careful. But we do need to bless our children. Bless them like nobody else. Bring them up in the training of the Lord, guidance of the Lord, the discipline of the Lord, in warnings, instructions, with Bible stories. Read to them. And don't forget to tell them the moral of the story. Give them the moral story. In uh, verses 5 through 8, it says, Bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling in sincerity of heart as to Christ, not with eye service as men-pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with goodwill doing service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is slave or free. And, of course, this time in the Bible, um, you know, it's not like... uh, uh, Slavery we had in America, in America, which was an abomination. But this was more, um, we're talking about paid servants in that time. There was a large number of Roman, in the, of the Roman world that was slaves. And so they had household, but they were employed. So this is what he was talking about, you know, um, talking about the bond servants to be um, obedient. And today we can use that more like an employer-employee type of a situation. He says, be obedient. Do what you're told. Do your job. Do it respectfully, with fear and trembling. Do it with diligence. Do it in sincerity. Not just, with, not just when your boss is looking, but really when they aren't looking. No hypocrisy, no pretense. Not doing it for men, but doing it all the time as unto the Lord with goodwill. Really wanting them to be successful. Really wanting to bless your boss. Uh, Jeremiah 29, uh, the Lord said to the people of Israel to be a blessing to Babylon. Pray Pray for the prosperity of the city that I've placed you in. When it comes to the service we are rendering in our jobs and at our job, we are to seek blessings of the business. We need to make sure, are we there to see them be a success or are we hindering them? Are we there to help them prosper or are we pulling them down? We're to do this unto the Lord, knowing that our reward is going to be from the Lord. In verse 9, it says, And you masters do the same to them, giving up threatening, knowing that your master in, also in heaven it has no partiality. If you're a boss, 
Make sure you don't have partiality. And I'll tell you, that's one of the toughest things. Because when people want to work for you, and they're right there, and they're supporting you, it is so easy to just like them. But when you have that one or two that just wants, doesn't agree with what you say, doesn't like what you wear, you know, has nothing good to say, it's really tough. But like we need to be reminded, this is unto the Lord. And we have a greater and higher calling. We need to make sure that we aren't showing partiality. A good thing to remember is we will need to give an account to the Lord. You know, we remember Boaz in, in the book of Ruth and how he came out to the, to the field with his workers. And he would bless them. And, and you know, he would honor God by honoring, by honoring those that worked for him. And, you know, what, what did they do? They turned around and they just worked harder for him. They were so excited. Uh, spirit-filled relationships work. They're distinctive. They look different. They stand out. Their, curi- their curiosity and their conduct in the way that they interact. You know, when you know when a Christian's in, in the workplace, you really do. Because they, they really are a little bit different than everybody else. Um, I just remember Jen Alvarez worked for me. And I know I've shared this too before. But she worked for me. And I'll tell you. Every boss in that place wanted Jen to work for them. And I can't tell you how many times they'd come up to me like, Lorraine, I want Jen. And I'd be like, oh, please don't let her go. Please don't let her go. You know, I, first of all, I, to be honest with you, I'd say, nope, you can't have her. <laughs> but, of course, it wasn't my call. But, you know, I'm, I'm just grateful. But she was an example of just an incredible Christian woman working in this place. She inspired people. She was going back to school, so she didn't stay, you know, too terribly long. But other people now wanted to go to school. She was just very inspirational, but she, she worked unto the Lord, and boy, you could definitely tell. And I'll tell you, we had a lot of, you know, worked with mostly unbelievers, so what an effect she did have. You may not always agree in God's ways. In, uh, he said in Isaiah 55, 9, but, so my ways was higher than your ways, but his ways work, and we're blessed only in, if we do it in God's ways. We'll find grace, we'll find power and joy that we're longing for, but it's only through the Lord. It's time to put on God's way, it's time to put God's ways to the test, to be filled with the Spirit that we might be more fulfilling relationships so we'll have eternal rewards. We're women who've been studying this book of Ephesians, and we know all that we are is because of Jesus. We know that all that he's done for us, and we know that he does long to fill us. We've spent many weeks in this book, and we've had many teachings. So as we're walking with him, and so walking with him as he wants is simply responsive. As we're filled with his spirit, he's working in us to willing to do his own good pleasure. And you know, the thing is, the Lord, we're his workmanship. We are his work of art in our relationships. We are his work of art in our employment. We are his work of art in our parenting. And God wants to show off his work. How are we doing? Paul knew that where the greatest spiritual challenge lied, there was also the greatest danger and opposition. When the, Lord works, when the Lord's work is genuinely being done, Satan will not fail to oppose us. As a believer in Jesus Christ, we're not only God's children and servants, but also his soldiers. And a soldier's job is to be prepared for battle. Jesus' ministry, if you remember, began with the battle against Satan the last 40 days in Luke 4.2. As his ministry drew to an end, after those 40 days, what did Satan do? Attacked him. And there he was in full force. In the Garden of Gethsemane, towards the end of his ministry, 
He was hit with such a force, it says that our Lord sweat great drops of blood, Luke 22:44. These two accounts alone should teach us that the battle is not going to become easier as we grow in obedience to God. If anything, Satan will, atten- Satan will intensify his efforts against those who continually, effectively serve the Lord. But God has not left us defenseless. When the, when the Apostle Paul first went to Ephesus to preach the gospel, he faced immediate opposition. We've been through the book of Acts. He was run out of the synagogue by unbelieving Jewish leaders in Acts 19, 8 and 9. He was mimicked by apostate Jews in 13 to 16. He was threatened by silversmith whose idol-making business was suffering because of Paul's ministry in verses 23 through 40. <clears throat> sorry, 40. Each day has its own challenges. Paul knew that more than anyone, like getting that call. Maybe somebody got that call. You've lost a loved one. Maybe you've been diagnosed or somebody you know very close to you has been diagnosed. And that's just those things that are personal. But how about the larger scale? What about 9-11? Those people woke up just thinking, you know, it's, here's a day. And then how about the Boston Marathon? People going out running in at the end. But even more than that, I don't know if anybody uh, caught a quick little glimpse of CNN uh, at work. They have TVs, but it says that 70 to 100 Christians were taken in Syria. They were, they're being held captive. They don't know too much yet. I didn't catch the rest of it, just that, that as of today, we need to pray, ladies. We need to pray. It didn't say 70 or 100 people, 70 or 100 Christians. Their faith is being put to the test. Paul closed his letter to the Ephesians by giving them and us the warnings and encouragement we need. Uh, Paul outlines the essential truths of a believer's warfare. We meet, we meet the enemy, we battle against demons, but we can have victory by standing firm. In verses uh, 10 to 13, we've got the armor of God. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And of course, our study wouldn't be uh, complete if our Keebler disciple didn't decide to make it with his armor on. So there he is. So we're good to go. So we can... Forge forward. In verse 11, the first thing I'm going to ask, lady, right now is where's your armor? Do you have it on? Or is it in your closet? Maybe, you know, tucked away, not to get dirty. Is it in a pile of clothes because you haven't had time to get to it yet? Is it put away nice and neat so that it doesn't get dinged up, banged up? Or, that's so funny, I have this in my notes. Maybe you're a new sister in Christ, but you're not yet aware of this armor. And now that you're thinking about it, let's move on. Where's the armor? And I love it because I was talking to Trudy earlier, and she just said that same thing. She prayed that same thing that, you know, maybe some of us aren't even aware that we have an armor. So as we move forward, uh, what we need to know is that preparation is basic to living an effective Christian life. The strength of the Christian life is depending on God. We need to be strong in the Lord and strong in his might. Our own strength is never enough to oppose Satan. But when we are strong in the Lord, even a little of his strength is sufficient in any battle. God's word says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, Philippians 4.13. It's not the amount of strength we have that is important. It's only its source. Michael the archangel in Jude 1.9. 
It says, yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Satan is a liar. He's the father of lies. And remember Eve? She was deceived. We need not to be deceived. If Michael couldn't contend with the devil, we are by no means able in our own strength to contend with him. We are in a war, a terrible and fierce war, but there, we have no reason to be afraid if the Lord is on our side. This isn't a light situation, but we have power and might in our Jesus. What means of strength have you taken to be prepared? Are you praying? Do you know the word? Are you obeying the word? Do you believe and have faith in the promises of God? It's, we, this is not a fight against flesh and blood. Mark 5.12, um, uh, just really very quickly, it's a uh, demon-possessed man, and he's in the tombs. And so, you know, Jesus comes to him, and, and he tells um, he says, so all the demons, you know, Jesus came to him, and all the demons in this man begged Jesus, saying, send us into swine that we may enter them. And time is not going to allow us, me to permit to tell you it. But they would rather have been in the swine than, than to be cast out. And so, Jesus, go ahead, but read it. It's in Mark uh, Chapter 5, it's a great story. Once again, we are no contender for the enemy. To take advantage of God's strength and might, a believer must, all, must also put on the full armor of God so that she will be able to stand firm. The Greek word put on indio carries the, the idea of permanence. The armor of God is not something to be taken off and on occasionally. It's something that should be, be put on permanently. Um, The Greek um, term here for stand firm is used in a military sense. It refers to holding a critical position while under attack. Living an obedient, spirit-empowered life is what enables us to stand firm. In Ephesians 6.11, it says we are to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Satan is God's enemy. Therefore, he's our enemy. The only way he can attack God is through us, and we can be sure he will seek out an attack with his schemes. Um, the Greek word for those schemes is also methodia, which is the English word method. It refers to craftiness, cunning, deception. Satan's evil schemes are built around stealth and deception. He comes in like that, and he deceives The Apostle John summarized the devil's attack with this exhortation. Do not love the world, Satan's present domain, nor the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father. 1 John 2, 15 and 16. One of Satan's most effective strategies and one of the believer's greatest dangers is the delusion that... No seriously threatening conflict between good and evil is raging in an invisible and supernatural, but it is. Let's not be naive, ladies. There is a spiritual warfare going on. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of darkness, against spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Paul reminds us as readers that the Christian struggle is against not only Satan himself, but also his demon subordinates. He has a vast army of adversaries who, like him, are not made of flesh and blood. Our greatest enemy is not the world we see, corrupt and wicked as it is, but the world that we can't see. Rulers, power, I'm sorry, powers, world forces of darkness, spiritual forces of wickedness 
describe the different stratas and ranks of these demons and their evil supernatural in which they operate. Human beings who promote paganism, the occult, the various um, ungodly and immoral movements and programs, these are just part of Satan's dupes. It's what he's doing to us. These are trapped in their sin, and their wickedness is unwittingly helpful to help him with his schemes. Each mention of those supernatural powers is preceded by against, and each seems to represent a particular category of where they are and how they operate. But Paul's purpose wasn't to explain how their hierarchy or any of that, their sophistication, were pitted against an incredible evil, potent, and a well-organized enemy. Our response should be to turn to God, who is our source of protection and victory. In 2 Kings uh, 19.35, it says, And it came to pass on a certain night that an angel of the Lord went out and killed the camp of the Assyrians, 185,000. And when the people arose in the morning, their corpses were all dead. If we're on God's side, one angel, 185,000 done. I want to be on the Lord's side. Every believer has already experienced the surpassing greatness of God's power towards us when we believed. These are in accordance with the workings of his strength, of his might that he brought, against, brought about in Christ. When he raised him from the dead, he seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. The power that raised Jesus from the dead and exalted him in the heavenly is our power too. It is given to us from the Lord as joint heirs. Ephesians 13 says to take up the full armor of God so that you're able to resist the devil. And having done everything to stand, God gives no def- God. <clears throat> tells his people that we're in a war, we need to be, we're going to be continually in a war until he returns and to take charge of the earth. But even the most willing and eager soldier of Christ is helpless without his provision. Paul points for us to take up the full armor. We have, we have his provisions in being his children, in having his word, in possessing the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and of having every resource that our Heavenly Father possesses. God is our strength. His strength is appropriated only through obedience. His mighty armor must be put on and taken up. In the great spiritual warfare in which we battle, we're called to resist and stand firm. What does James 4, 7 say? Resist the devil and he will flee. Peter also tells us to be sober, sober spirit, be of a sober spirit, be of alert. Your adversary, the devil, he prowls like a roaring lion, sinking someone whom he may devour. We need to resist him firm in our faith first peter 5 8 so here we are with verses 14 to 20 with our armor it says stand therefore having girded your waist with truth having put on the breastplate of righteousness having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace above all taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit which is the word of god Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit. Being watchful to the end with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. And for me, the utterance may be given to me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of God of the gospel. For which I am the ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Paul identifies six pieces of armor which God has supplies to his children to withstand the onslaught of Satan and his demons. The Greek word for having uh, the Arios tense indicates that the first three pieces of the armor are permanent. The believer is not to be without them. The last three of the armor, um, they are preceded by the Greek uh, verb translated taking up, 
take, which implies that we need to keep those always at hand and use them as soon as our actual fighting begins. Gird your waist with the truth. Stand firm, therefore, having gird your loins with truth. The Roman soldiers used to wear a tunic. It was an outer garment um, uh, that served as their primary clothing. It was pretty large. Um, it had a, pl- a hole for their arms and their head, and it draped over them loosely. But since the majority of, of ancient combat was hand-to-hand, the loose tunic was obviously a hindrance if they were going to go to battle and could even be dangerous. But before a battle, if they're... Um, it was there that they would carefully cinch it up and they would tuck it into this heavy leather belt. The belt demonstrates the believer's readiness for war and stands for truth. The Greek word uh, translated truth basically refers to the content of which is true. Knowing that the content of God's word and God's truth is absolutely essential for the believer if she is to battle successfully against the schemes of Satan. Without basic Bible teaching, knowledge, reading the word, we're subject to being carried away about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men, the craftiness and deceitful schemes. Uh, Truth can also refer to the attitude of truthfulness. And I love it today, a little early in our devotion, you know, Paulina reminded, you know, truthfulness, it's not half truth. It's not partial truth. It's truthfulness. It represents not only the accuracy of specific truth, but also the quality of truthfulness. To be girded with truth reveals an attitude of readiness and of genuine commitment. It's the mark of a sincere believer who forsakes hypocrisy. Every difficult that might hinder the work of the Lord is gathered and tucked into that belt of truthfulness so that it might be out of the way. Paul in 2 Timothy 2, 4 said, No soldier in active service entangles herself in the affairs of everyday life so that she may please the one who enlisted her as a soldier. The breastplate of righteousness. No Roman soldier would go into battle without this breastplate. It was a tough, sleeveless uh, piece of armor that covered everything, their, covered their, their head and their limbs, and often made of leather or of heavy, heavy linen on uh, which there were sewn overlapping pieces of um, metal um, molded and hammered to conform their bodies. The purpose of the piece of armor is obviously to protect one's heart, lungs, intestines, all those vital organs. The mind and the emotions are the two areas where Satan most fiercely attacks believers. He wants to cloud our minds with false doctrine, false principles, false information to mislead us and to confuse us. He also wants to confuse our emotions by perverting our affections, morals, our loyalties, our goals, our commitments. He desires to snatch the word of God from our minds and place it with his own perverse ideas. He seeks to undermine pure living and replace it with immorality, greed, hate, envy, and other vices. He wants us to laugh at sin rather than to mourn over it and rationalize it rather to confess it and bring it to the Lord for forgiveness. He seduces us to become so accustomed to the sin and the sin around us that it no longer even disturbs us. Our protection against such attacks is that breastplate of righteousness. Righteousness is taken and wrapped around our whole being, just as the ancient soldiers covered themselves with the armor of of, uh, the breastplate of righteousness. Paul here, breastplate, Paul here is obviously not speaking of self-righteousness which is not righteousness at all, but sin of pride. The breastplate of righteousness is practical righteousness of moment-to-moment obedience to God's word. Our armor must include the 
breastplate of righteousness, the genuine holiness, so that we may take every thought captive into obedience, like Second Corinthians 10.5 tells us, so that our minds can be set on the things above and not on the things of this earth, Colossians 3.2 tells us. We move to the shoes of the gospel of peace. Since the, since the average ancient soldier marched, you know, through high, uh, roads and hot, and hot roads and they climbed up jagged rocks and, you know, they're trampled over thorns and they went through, you know, streams and they're, you know, at jagged rocks and stones in the middle of them, their feet needed to be protected. A soldier whose feet were blistered, cut, swollen, would not be a very good soldier and would find himself in a pretty perilous situation. I read that the shoes of the Roman soldiers usually had bits of metals and nails in them to help them give them better traction as they climbed up them slippery hills, gave them better stability. Um, Our spiritual footwear is equally important in, in his warfare against the schemes of the devil. If we have girded ourselves with the truth, with the, um, girded ourselves with um, the strong belt of truth, and we put on that breastplate of righteousness, but we don't have shoes, proper shoes, shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, we're destined to stumble. And we're going to fall, and we may have many defeats. The Greek word tra- uh, translated preparation generally refers to readiness. A good pair of boots all, always allowed the soldier to march to climb, to fight, to do whatever was needed at that moment, at a moment's notice. Christ demands the same readiness from us. In this passage, the gospel of truth, the gospel of peace refers to the good news that believers are to be at peace with God. The unsaved person is helpless, ungodly, sinful, and an enemy of God. Romans 5, 6 to 10 tells us the saved person, on the other hand, is reconciled to God through faith in his son, Romans 5, 10, and 11, 2 Corinthians 5, 20, and 21. Therefore, when our feet are shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, we stand in confidence of God's love for us, his union with us, and his commitment to fight for us. The believer who stands in the Lord's power need not fear the enemy. Even Satan himself, when he comes to attack us, our feet are rooted firmly on the solid ground of the gospel of peace. To the shield of faith we move. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you are able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Roman soldiers used um, these shields. There's a couple of different ideas. They were three feet by three feet. They're four foot by two feet. But they're obviously big shields, as we can see. Roman soldiers used these kind of shields uh, to protect themselves, um, their whole body. They could cover, get behind them as they went into war and, and deflect anything that would come in their way. The shield was made of a solid piece of wood and was covered with metal or a thick leather. The faith Paul re- refers to here is the faith of God. Um, it's immeasurable, but it's not a blind faith, ladies. The Christian faith is infinitely powerful, and because the object of faith is Jesus, a trust in his promises and his power, the Christian, um, our faith will never fail because the one in whom our faith is placed never fails. In the New Testament times, what they would do when they went out to battle is they would dip their arrows, um, they would wrap the, the ends of them with pieces of cloth. Then they would dip, dip them or soak them in pitch. And then before they shot them, they would light them on fire, 
That's where we get the fiery darts. So just before, boom, here they go. They light them. So here would come this arrow like a missile into the enemy's troops. The pitch burned fiercely so that, um, you know, if it hit anything, and then obviously if it did, then it would splatter, and then you'd have all of this fire. Well, such arrows inflicted serious burns on enemy soldiers. It could destroy their clothing, their gear. The most reliable protection against these flame missiles was the shield. Its covering of metal or treated leather would either deflect them or extinguish them. Satan continually bombards God's children with flaming arrows of immorality, of hatred, of anger, covetousness, pride, fear, despair, distrust, and other temptations. Every temptation, either directly or indirectly, he tries to get us to doubt and distrust God. The purpose of Satan's missile is to cause believers to forsake the trust in God, to drive a wedge between the Savior and the saved. Put up the shield of faith and don't let the enemy have his way. We move on to the helmet of salvation, which is the fifth piece of God's armor. It's represented by Roman soldiers. Um, They wore this helmet without um, which you wouldn't even go to battle. If you didn't have a helmet, you weren't going to go out to war. Uh, Some of the helmets were made of thick leather, covered with metal plates. Others were heavy metal molten, and then they usually had pieces here to protect their face. The purpose of the helmet was to protect the head from injury. Um, You know, they also had big swords when they went out, and and, uh, they were two-edged, and they would go, and the cavalry would swing them, you know, off with the head type of a deal. So there were they, so, you know, these to help to protect them. Uh, Paul relates the helmet of salvation, um, to Satan's blows. They're directed at the believer's security and assurance in Christ. The, danger, the dangerous edges of Satan's spiritual sword as he swings it to us once again is discouragement and doubt. He wants to get us to doubt and he wants us to be discouraged. He'll point to your failures, to our sins, to unresolved problems, to poor health. Whatever he sees negative or seems negative in our lives, he wants us to lose our confidence in love and care of our Heavenly Father. Doubt is what often brings about discouragement, doubts about the truth of God, including doubt of one's salvation or worse sort of discouragement for a believer, which is the worst kind of discouragement. We need to know who we are and where we stand in the Lord. If a believer doubts God's goodness or dependability or his relationship to God, going to be uncertain. We start having these feelings of uncertainty. We have no ground for hope and no protection from this, this, this discouragement. We need to make sure that we are know who we are, grounded in the Word. That's why it's so important, so important to be in the Word of God. Uh, don't let the noise around you be louder than that within the, what the Lord wants to say to you. He says, trust me. He says, wait on me. He says, I love you with an everlasting love. He says, cast your cares on me. He said, I'll provide for you. He says, I'm your shield and your buckle. He says, I will rejoice over you with singing. I will take care of your children. I'll heal your heart. Make sure that we can find that time to hear those things from the Lord. Since Paul's addressing believers, putting on the helmet of salvation, this does not refer to receiving Christ as Savior because we're already talking about believers. Um, It seems that he might... um, This might be enough. Victory is on our side, ladies, if we are on the Lord's side. We need to know of the Lord and his infinite wisdom. Paul concludes this careful and thoughtful and thorough subject 
on God's armor by identifying the last piece, which is the sword of the spirit. The sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Um, the sword is, you know, once again, in battle, it's about 6 to 18 inches long. It was common. They used it in that hand-to-hand battle. It was just kind of that, that basic principle of, you know, their basic weapon. Um, they carried it in, the, on, in a sheath along their side of their belt, but always ready to use. Um, the Greek phrase uh, translated of the spirit can also be translated by the spirit or spiritual, referring to the nature of the sword rather than its source. From the context, we know it is spiritual weapons. We use it in our struggles against spiritual, our, the spiritual enemies. As the truth, the Holy Spirit teaches us all things and brings God's word to our remembrance. That's what his word tells us. We will have that word in that time when we need it. John 14 tells us. But do we know it? Do we have even those simple basics in there that we can call upon? Paul states that the sword of the Spirit is the word of God. It is first of it is the first of all the defensive weapons capable of deflecting the blows of the opponent. It is our supreme weapon of defense against the onslaught of Satan. When Jesus was tempted in the, in the wilderness by Satan, his defense for each temptation was a passage from scripture, from scripture that precisely contradicted the devil's word. You can find that in Matthew 4, 4, 7, and 10. If we don't know God's word, well, we can't use it well. Satan will invariably find out where we are lazy, lacking, and he'll confuse us and attack us there. Scripture's not, to, not like that broad sword where you just go around and try to wave it and, and you know, use it indiscriminately. But more, it's a dagger and supposed to be used with great precision. The word of the Spirit is also an offensive is also an offensive weapon, capable of inflicting blows as well as deflecting those of the enemy. Scripture is living and active, and is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the vision of the soul and the spirit of joint and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. There is no creature hidden from His sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to, to do. That's what Hebrews 4, 12, and 13 tells us. The word of God is so powerful that it transforms men and women from falsehood into truth, from darkness into light, from sin and death to righteousness and life. It changes sadness to joy, despair into hope, stagnation into growth, childish into maturity, and failures into success. Every time God's word um, leads a person to salvation, um, we see the demonstration of the power and how it cuts down Satan's dominion and darkness, and it brings light to a darkened soul. Oh, that we might be skillful in his word, and his word as as well as with the other pieces of the armor. In verse 18, it says, praying always with all prayers and supplication in the spirits. Pray, 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 pray. And I think that is, you know, the key here, prayer. Prayer, prayer, prayer. You need to be praying. You need to be in prayer. You need to be praying. We just need to pray, ladies. Always, always, always. Uh, rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. And everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. First Thessalonians 5, 16 and 18. James 5, 16. The effective, fervent prayer of the righteous man avails much. Ladies, 
that we have so much to pray for. We just need to pray. As you pray, God will show you his will. He'll direct you in prayer of his will, but you need to just pray. There's so much to pray for. We can intercede. We can pray for thankfulness. We can just pray, pray, pray. Uh, And last but not least, he ends with, um, but that you also may know my affairs and and then how I'm doing. Tychicus, a beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will make all things known to you whom I have sent to you for this very purpose, that you may know our affairs, and that he may comfort your hearts. Peace to the brethren, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Paul ends with accountability to the brethren. Uh, what his current status was, he sends his servant to update them, let him let them know, but also to comfort them. Paul still, in this very end, wants them to be comforted. And I know for me, I have definite accountability. You know, when it's our time to teach, um, you know, we've got our texts going and, and uh, you know, they, you know how are you doing? Where are you at? What do we need to pray for? Anything specific. And, um, and, and I love that. And then they ask for follow-up. I mean, but that's that accountability. I have those accountability partners. And, of course, then once you're done, you're off and gone, and the next person gets prayed for. But, you know, like the Lord is good. But it's needing to be accountable. Uh, we need to know, we need to, to evaluate what the Bible says rather than looking at the issue through the lens of personal preference. What does God say rather than what does this mean to me? We need to know what the word says. We need to be a comfort to each other. We need to um, encourage one another, pray for one another. And once you know what God says, then you'll have your choice to believe him and commit to a life that lives according to him. You need to root yourself in God's word and be called one of his oaks of righteousness, like Isaiah 61.3, or the option, do what you want, and continue in your, and to be tossed to and fro with doubt and indecision, like James 1.6 says. The Christian life is a battle. It's a warfare on a grand scale. The book of Ephesians hits a wide range of moral and ethical behavior designed to ensure that the believers are living up to the heavenly call. As we continue in our faith day by day, month by month, year by year, the temptation to get comfortable will always exist. Paul represented the gift of God in Christ and the benefits we receive so clearly clearly that we can't help but ask ourselves, "Does does my life reflect the reality that it should? Am I where I should be as long as I've been in the Lord? Have you grown in your Christian life since you came to faith in Jesus? The latter half of Ephesians makes it clear that our spiritual growth occurs primarily with others. Iron sharpening iron, Proverbs 27, 17. Your Christian walk, your daily life is to be characterized by unity, holiness, love, wisdom, and perseverance in spiritual warfare. Paul wrote the book of Ephesians to broaden our horizons so that we might understand the dimensions of God's eternal purpose and grace and come to appreciate the high goals that God has for his church and for us as believers. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your goodness and your love. Father, thank you for giving us your word, Father. Father, but mostly for that armor. Lord, the battle rages and it is so, so, so intensified. I pray that each day as ladies we would take up that armor, that we would put on that armor. Lord, I just lift my sisters to you. Lord, you've shared and shown so much um, of the book of Ephesians with us. 
Lord, it's a tall order that you've called us to, to fight. But we know that, Lord, that by your spirit working in us, as we yield to that spirit, we know that you will work in us as we pray to you, Lord. I pray that our spirit-filled women, that, um, Lord, you would just bless us, Lord. Help us to see the goodness and the eternal, um, Lord, that the eternity that is the end goal, Father. I pray that we would not just uh, lose sight and, Lord, allow just whatever the day, the moment brings, Father, but we would continue to hold on to your truths, to your goodness, Father. Help us to be those women of prayer, Lord God. Put prayer in our heart, Father. Help us to seek after you and your goodness. Help us to encourage each other and to comfort one another, Lord God. Father, I pray that you would just continue to have your way in us, about us, through us. And, Father, continue to help us to just uh, forge on, Father. Keep us strong and continue to just teach us in your power and in your might. And, Lord, we thank you and praise you and lift this to you in Jesus' name. Amen.